Daniel Thorson. Welcome to the metagame. Hey, Daniel. Yeah, great to be here. So um, you're a monastic. You live in a monastery in Vermont. And I assume that means you follow a very intentional practice regime, uh, probably involving multiple hours of seated meditation and different types of practices that I'm sure we'll get into. But I thought a good way to open this conversation would be to talk about commitment because that kind of a lifestyle obviously requires a certain level of commitment that you've chosen. Yeah. And so I'm curious, what led you to that commitment? Yeah. Um, first, I want to just clarify that, in fact, I'm not a monastic and mm. um, the monastic academy or Maple, where I live, is not a monastery. We are a training system that's profoundly informed by monastic training, but we are ourselves not a monastery. We don't uh, have people take vows of celibacy, and we're not part of a kind of established monastic lineage. And we want to make that clarification just for the sake of you know honoring those who do actually commit themselves to taking these kinds of more epic vows in the true monastic lineages. But um, so just to, just to make mm. that clear, um, we are not, and I am not um, a monk, and this is not a monastery, at least as we see it. Um, but as you say, there is an intensive schedule of practice and a lot of what life is here looks like what uh, life at a monastery looks like. Um, and yeah, and, terms of commitment, um, yeah, this is something that has been one of the primary practice points for me recently, um, very inspired by, um, you know, uh, actually previous guests you had on the show, Layman Pascal, we talked about mm. this, um, the need to trap yourself right? The need to kind of find yourself in situations that you cannot move out of, uh, move away from, and how difficult this is in most cases in the modern world, even in uh, kind of transformative culture that there's so much optionality. Often it's done online. You can just close the Zoom window or choose not to go to the gathering this evening because you just don't want to. Mm. Um, and part of what is so profound, perhaps the most profound thing about living in a place like Maple is the way in which you're trapped. Uh, you just have to show up, you know, whether you want to or not. Uh, you have to be there at 4.40 a.m. for the chanting and the meditation. And you're trapped not just by yourself, but with all these people that you didn't choose to be with. And um, those really, uh, you know, often we talk about all the different psychotechnologies and practices we do here. But in my mind, the things that are really, that do the work are the the fact of being trapped and the fact of being with others as you are kind of co-trapped. And so, um, mm. you know, different people here have different kinds of commitments. I myself am committed to another two years. Um, so I'm just here, come hell or high water uh, for two years. Um, and, uh, you know, different folks here have different levels of commitment, but it's, it's, a, it's a kind of critical part of our training and, and um, it's a, a, a big aspect of the training is getting people to the point where they can actually make real commitments that you can trust. 
there's a lot of folks, I think, at least it was true for me. I, I don't think when I first came here that I could make commitments in a trustworthy way. Um, and that's an essential aspect of the training is coming, becoming a kind of person who can really make commitments and um, stick to them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the word integrity comes to mind there, being someone of in integrity. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, though, for you personally, how did you come to this commitment? With with Maple in particular. Yeah, or if there was something before Maple that was more of a distinct inflection point in your life. Yeah, well, um, I'll speak about Maple for now. Um, you know, one way in which I came to this was... Um, just seeing how untrustworthy my mind was, you know, that, mm. that I would um, say I was going to do something to commit to something, some regime of practice or behavior. And then I would find myself inevitably not doing it, especially when it got tough. Um, I would just stop doing it. I would make excuses. And, you know, at the time that I'm thinking of right now, I was living in Boulder, Colorado, where um, I just had options, you know, I could do whatever I wanted essentially. And through that and through reflection and talking with wise friends and mentors, I, I started to see the, the real, the real critical, the criticality of, of commitment and, and, and being trapped in this way. Zach Stein and his work really, um, I think was the, the a big part of what opened that up for me. Um, and so, you know, upon reflecting on my life and what it's for, I kind of, it became clear that the, the, the most good thing that I could do was trap myself at Maple, both for my sake, as well as for the sake of this, um, young institution that it needed me and I needed it. And so I mm -hmm. entered into a relationship of commitment with it. I remember hearing you say at some point in a conversation about existential risk, you said something like, I voluntarily destroy myself so the apocalypse won't hurt me. Mm. I, I wonder if uh, you still resonate with that quote, and if so, uh, what that meant. Yeah, I don't remember ever saying those exact words, but I'm sure I've said things that are similar, uh, in spirit, certainly. And, and yeah, what, what comes mm -hmm. to mind is, uh, yeah, I guess I'm just naming, you know, mentors and people who have really impacted me, but there was a podcast with Jordan Hall where he was asked, you know, what's the most important work that an individual can do in order to prepare themselves for this, um, you know, transition, this kind of, uh, time between worlds, this potential collapse of, a lot of what we call civilization. And he said very quickly and directly that the most important work you can do is to learn how to die, right? Is to, is to not be afraid of your own death, mm. your own passing away. And I think from a kind of Buddhist perspective and from Maple's perspective, so much of the unskillful action that contributes to the kind of larger patterns that produce the metacrisis are rooted in a fear of discomfort, of confusion, and ultimately of, of dying. And so to the degree that we can really become, uh, come to peace with our own death, 
um, that clarifies a lot of what is important and how to act um, in a way that is, again, this, this word that we use a lot at Maple, and act in a way that's trustworthy. Uh, in other words, act in a way that um, that that is aligned with the harmonization and well-being of life instead of just the preservation of um, your life. Yeah, so um, tell me more about, about Maple and... Specifically, I'm interested in what Maple is aimed at. Um, mm. And I know uh, we talked before about this idea of harmonization and becoming an omni-harmonizing agent. And I know yeah. there's a set of different practices associated with that. Maybe you can take us through them. Sure. Um, yeah, and so I have to then um, sort of make a distinction between like Maple and what it is aiming for, and then the kind of harm body of work of the kind of harmonizing or omni-harmonic agent development, which is more my my piece. Um, and so there's lots of folks here at Maple, uh, and, and we're kind of learning to work together and find a shared vision and, and shared curriculum that we're creating together. Um, and so maybe I'll first say a little bit about what Maple um, is aiming at, and then I can share more about you know, my, my piece, if, if that feels interesting. Um, yeah. So, uh, let's see, there's so many ways to describe what Maple is. Um, I think, you know, what, one way of looking at it that I've, I've, I've liked recently, um, is that Maple is, is, is a kind of like wisdom institution. It's an attempt to create a wisdom institution that's, uh, that's fit for service in the current context that we're in, and, and specifically from Maple's perspective, the thing that um, really matters about our current context is this meta crisis, is this poly crisis, is this kind of time of existential risk where we're um, embedded in what Zach Stein calls like the kind of second shock of existence, the recognition that what we do now collectively uh, could threaten the life of all humans and even all life on this planet and that the stakes are really high and that it matters and that it didn't used to be like this you know 100 years ago there wasn't this sense really it started perhaps with the <laughs> uh, development of nuclear weapons and the usage of them but we, we find ourselves now in a context where we have to reckon and encounter this fact of the shocking reality that we could end everything that everything could die. Uh, and so at Maple, we're really attempting to see like, well, so what would a wisdom institution be like that is in relationship with that reality, with that um, context? Um, and so it, it's, it's, a, it's a wisdom training space. In other words, there's uh, an ecology of practices, which is maybe a term that your audience is familiar with, where we follow a schedule, we live mm -hmm. in community, uh, we do regular retreats and, you know, um, most fundamentally the goal of this training is to create, um, trustworthy people. And one way that I mm -hmm. understand what that word means is that, uh, trustworthy people are people that if you give them power, they will use it for the harmonization and well-being of all life instead of for 
either the destruction of all life, which is often the case, or even just mm -hmm. the protection of their life, which is almost always the case. Um, and so how do we create people who really, truly, deeply are uh, trustworthy, that we can look to as people that are wise and that we can learn from? Um, that's really <laughs> what, what we're attempting to, to do here is create those people and create cultures and communities that um, um, like burst forth when those sorts of people come together. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's a lot more I could say. I don't know if you want to pick up on any of those points. I can also, we could talk about the other piece that you brought up around harmonization too. Yeah. Um, I like, I like your definition of trustworthy people mm. uh, because first when I think of trustworthy I was thinking about it in a more, I guess, simplistic sense, like people who you can count on to do what they say, basically. Yes. And that's something I've tried to uh, become better at in my own life, just just with myself. Like I say that I'm going to do something or I have a commitment to myself and then I follow through on it. But mm. you added a dimension to it, which is if you give these people power, maybe as their power scales, they're not going to be corrupted by that power yeah. and they're not going to make things worse for others. So there's a, there's a component of connectedness there, um, or an ethical responsibility to other people baked into the word yeah. trustworthy. Yeah. I wonder if you'd add any, any other ingredients to it that I missed. No, I mean, I would maybe expand on it a little bit. So at Maple, one of the, um, sort of key framings that we use in the training is um, these three components of what we call wisdom, love, and power. Uh, uh, really quickly, wisdom mm. is the ability to drop all perspectives, to go beyond whatever perspective you are currently in or holding. Love is the capacity and ability to, to see the world from another's perspective, to really get another's perspective. Uh, and then power is the ability to um, get others to see from your perspective. Um, and, the, and these are all kind of carry with them different trainings mm. like um, power. You know, we, we do like learn how to get shit done just straightforwardly or how to give talks that persuade people to a certain mm. perspective. Uh, love is all of the kind of therapeutic and emotional healing modalities that we do here, as well as just like how to listen really deeply or how to hear like, what values people are coming from, things like that. And then wisdom is much more this kind of movement of awakening, of deconstruction, of letting go. And it's really the kind of integration and mutually supportive functioning of those three aspects that creates a trustworthy person. And usually it's the case that places like Maple that are focused primarily on wisdom and love and sort of absence the power aspect. Um, and so, you know, one kind of way of looking at Maple's critique of the world is that uh, it tends to be the case that those with, with wisdom and love do not have power, and that's a problem. Mm. And then it's also the case that those with power tend to lack uh, wisdom and love, and that's a problem. And so we want to give wisdom and love to the powerful. We want to give power to the wise and loving. Um, and that's kind of one another way of looking at what Maple um, is aiming for. Yeah, um, there's so many places we can go from here but the thing that this brings to mind is one of my um one of my biases against the pure awakening path yeah. 
Um, and I, I just noticed this is something that makes practice difficult for me. So I've had periods of my life where I've been meditating a lot and then all of a sudden I just kind of like lose. It just feels like it's not the thing that I need to be doing. Yeah. But more and more I've realized it's, it's just a component and you articulated it very well. The reason why it's always felt like it's not the whole story is that um, this, I, I, I would call it agency, but this category of power also needs to be cultivated yeah. because some of the people I know who are the most practiced uh, with meditation or on the awakening path, they, they seem to have um, almost like this equanimity induced apathy towards the, the world. Yeah. And this isn't always the case. And I don't think they would say they have it, but I have this like judgment that they do. And mm -hmm. perhaps there's a kernel of truth to it um, because agency is needed. And I'll, I'll bring this in. So uh, one of the things I do uh, is I coach people on productivity. Mm -hmm. um, that's uh, something that I've been filling my time with more and more lately. And so mm -hmm. I, I'm working specifically with really agentic people, mm -hmm. you know, people in tech and finance, et cetera that have accomplished a lot, you know, maybe they're on their third company or something and they're trying to get better at um, accomplishing more or there's something that they're not realizing. And I always bring a very philosophical angle to it. Mm. And it corroborates what you said, where a lot of these agentic people, um, it's like they specialized in power, but perhaps yes. they haven't fully developed those other dimensions that, that Mabel is trying to balance out, at least within the institution. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and, and furthermore, it's, it's, you know, one way of understanding, um, the meta crisis is that we, and this is, you know, conciliant with like Daniel Schmachtenberger's kind of take is that we find ourselves with power and, and more and more power that's sort of unbound from love and wisdom. And so that's, you can see that on the kind of systems level, or you can see that in any given individual whereby they're living their life and really learning the game of power, but it's actually um, problematic if they're not uh, training in these other dimensions. Um, I also also offer another. Cause I like I like kind of layering models on top of each other. The the model mm. at Maple works really well with Zach Stein's meta psychology, and so this will kind of give you a, just a different um, flavor into this sort of framing. So he has the triple of uh, transcendence, and that maps onto wisdom, ensoulment, which maps onto love, and intelligence or development, which maps onto power or agency, as you were saying. Uh, and these seem to be some kind of like, these are primary aspects of the human experience that we really do need to reckon with if we're um, you know, trying to become fully uh, actualized or um, engage fully with what life is and could be for us. So, uh, yeah, I, th I think it, I think it's true. I'm sure you met, uh, you encounter people who are kind of lopsided, and that's really what it feels like. Yeah. You know, when I meet people who are just like gunning for transcendence or gunning for wisdom, they feel just kind of like off, right? Either they just feel like they actually don't know themselves in an important way, like in the ensoulment way, where they don't really that they like they, they 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 can't really be in their emotions. They can't actually like emote often, like they're just kind of floating above them or floating behind them in a way that feels, frankly, in my experience, a little bit creepy. 
you know it's like not mm-hmm. they're not quite there yeah or they just like have no capacity to do things in the world they're just like sitting and happy and I'm, and, uh, and every yeah. single one of those aspects has a failure mode right can kind of become a greedy algorithm mm-hmm. that just you get uh you think that that you know oh just trauma healing right like that's going to be the one that i just push the trauma healing button forever and then i'll be good uh, it's just like, no, it's actually not that simple. Right. You need to kind of weave between these threes in a, in a dynamic, uh, and hopefully mutually supportive way so that our wisdom informs our power and our power informs our wisdom. And so a lot of the work at Maple is trying to set up those supportive feedback loops so that, um, they start to function together and co-inform each other. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is great. This feels like a more holistic uh, developmental model, um, because I, I know um, in, in my past when I was more biased to the awakening side of things, um, and I had some psychedelic experiences that that put me on that path. Hmm. Uh, I'd, I'd be able to reduce everything to just consciousness and its constituents, and um, in a way, it came at the expense of of agency because the more I rested open as consciousness the less sense of a self I had. And uh, there was no place for free will either. Mm-hmm. And um, the more equanimity I have, the, the less I'm bothered by things that don't seem right. Yes. And it's almost like, actually I'll put it kind of a, with a simple example. I've noticed that I actually have an impulse towards, uh, for lack of a better term, beauty. Like if I just mm-hmm. sit in this room without distractions, I'll notice things in the room that could be more beautiful. Mm. And I actually think that's a great impulse and I want to cultivate it and I want to get good at actualizing that, that impulse when it's wise to do so. But when I'm resting as, as consciousness, um, that impulse is on the same playing field as all my other impulses. And it's almost like everything is just kind of humming at the equivalent frequency. And I've always had an intuition that that's not going to that's not, that's not going to work on its own. So I, I feel, uh, uh, talking to you about this and also Layman Pascal had a very funny way of framing this. He said, there's like the human operating system, there's the installment package, there's mm. like the awakening add on, and then like an ecological extension set. And some people like, they just, <laughs> they just pick one, <laughs> yeah. one from the menu. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, totally. And as you're speaking to it, like it's, it's part of what's fascinating and challenging about trying to create a system a training system like maple is that these um, modes or aspects are actually kind of pulling against each other right the mm-hmm. ensoulment the movement of ensoulment and love is really um, one of a depth of mattering right that things things in their particularity matter to extraordinary degrees in their uniqueness whether it's you or the place you're in or the relationships you have. And then as you say, like the movement of awakening is that really actually none of it matters. There's nothing to do. Mm. Um, you're, you're, you're free from all that. And it's like, how do we, you know, the, the, the logic of, of those different aspects pulls against each other and, and is in a kind of tension. Ideally, I believe that you can establish through um, kind of proper design and, and training a kind of generative tension between these aspects. But often, there is not a generative tension. There's a kind of polarization and, and even like infighting and, and kind of defamation between people who have find their allegiance <laughs> with a various modality, you know, trauma healing people, 
accuse the transcendent people of spiritual bypassing and um mm. you know the transcendent people accuse the uh insolvent people of kind of just like um narcissism and um uh, right. kind of fixation on emotional gunk so it's 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 yeah it's it's a tough balance to strike but it seems critical it seems um like we, we can't get to where I, I have a sense we all kind of want to get without this establishing these things in a kind of generative tension. Yeah. And, uh, what, what's Maple's approach to this or what are some, even your, your own personal clues on how to establish that generative tension? It's a good question. And, and it's one that I, you know, I find myself very much like in the inquiry around. I don't, I don't think I have any answers. I'm not, I'm not sure that like we have any answers yet. I feel like this is like, mm a horizon that, that we're really, um, becoming intimate with now. Uh, you know, I, th I so, so to begin with, you know, Maple is, and I, and likely always will be, uh, placing a heavier emphasis on transcendent practice. Um, mm -hmm. and, and in part, I think that's because transcendent practice done well is rare in our culture, rarer than insolment and certainly much rarer than power or development or intelligence, mm. right? Actually, don't really necessarily need more training spaces for the development of intelligence. There might be ways that we need to do it better, and there's a lot of refinement, and there's a lot of linking up of intelligence to wisdom and love that needs to be done. But we don't see that as being like the kind of primary need. And so I focus a lot on like, creating a mutually supportive relationship between love or insolment and wisdom or insolment and transcendence. And, and there, um, it's, it's really fascinating. You know, it, it does seem to be the case that when you do a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, wisdom practice or transcendence practice, that it kind of, um, forces, a, 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 or potentiates transformation in the identity structures that if you don't take mm. advantage of with insolment practice and, and especially with dyadic relationships where you can really be seen in and honored for your uniqueness, that then transcendence practice, I believe, can start to get a little bit almost like pathological and can even start mm. to come off the rails and become sort of like in, a, in an unfortunate way life negating. Um, mm. and so, so one, one of the things that I look at is, is, um, you know, is, is there, um, places in a life where you get to be seen and honored and, um, and get to unfold your uniqueness as you're doing transcendence practice. Um, and then, uh, how do we say this? It's like, um, uh, and like what, what, what season is it in your development like what 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 is what is the right move now and are you kind of free to play between these different modalities and these different ways of working um, are they all respected right are they all respected are they all kind of held as significant um, and then you know it's really it's really individual it's really down to the mm -hmm. individual level I don't know that there's like there probably are gross rules of thumb but I don't know what they are yet uh, it just seems so idiosyncratic to the individual. And so a lot of what we do here at Maple, at least what we attempt to do, is be in conversation with the trainee and kind of be sensing into it 
together. Like what, what is your edge? What's your developmental edge? What is being called for? Cause your life is speaking to you. You know, are you getting like too wrapped up around the axle of your difficult emotions? Well, maybe it's time for uh, more transcendence practice while also doing work on the ensoulment level to kind of um, learn how to be in a more spacious and, and rooted in presence in relationship to your emotions. Uh, and, and so, you know, uh, I don't think I'm giving a very clear answer because I, I myself am actively looking for clear answers around this. Uh, right. but those are just some initial thoughts. Yeah. And, and this reminds me of something Layman Pascal said, where, mm. uh, the stage we're at right now, we don't really know what the practices are, but maybe we have, we can agree on like the proto skills and mm -hmm. he defined them like the layer before, like what these uh, ecology of practices are. And he said, you probably need a certain amount of intentionality so that you can, um, actually do any practice. You need somatic introspection. So the ability to actually tell what's going on inside the body and the subsystem so that, um, you can answer the question of what's appropriate for this person right now. And then he also mm -hmm. said the need for, uh, dialogos or, or good conversational practice and that kind of connects to what you were saying about the dyad. So it, the way I understand this quite simply is um, there needs to be a, a mechanism for identifying and course correcting what's appropriate for the individual right now. And those three qualities are in service of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's, that's how we played it at the um, I did a three-month training in Canada. I think we, we talked a little bit about this previously, but really sensitizing, learning to be sensitive to when there's like dissonance or disharmony in the energy body, in the somatic experience, and then be, be like entering into a relationship of curiosity and experimentation with regards to like what what is actually needful mm. now. Is it meditation? Is it like... A, a, a kind of dyadic relationship? Is it actually circling? Is there like a conflict that I'm embedded in? Is there some kind of like repressed value that's kind of layered under there that I need to access, reveal and clarify and then like live according to? So there's like different moves and, and, and it's really only one's own experience that can ultimately be the guide in terms of what's uh, most appropriate. And so, yeah, it's like you say, how do we get, give people the skills to um, sense that next step and then be in kind of a, uh, kind of exploratory conversation that clarifies that with and for them. Yeah. So let me, let me collect some of the things we've, we've touched on. Um, the stakes are high, mm. you know, we know the way that human beings are living and have lived historically. It's, it's just not sustainable. And there's all these different ways in which we might, uh, end the game basically. Mm. And, What's needed in response to that is wisdom, um, which, you know, I, I have to have trouble defining, but I think we can use it as a placeholder for now. And everything we just discussed about these practices um, and these different models are, are earnest attempts at cultivating wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I think I'll highlight something here that um, is probably obvious, but I'll say it anyway. This is not about conversation and ideas. Mm -hmm. This is about embodied practice. This is about personal transformation. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll add one, one other thing. So you're, you're in a wisdom institution, basically. But the majority of people aren't. 
Mm. Majority of people are, um, if there's like a continuum between monastics and householders, most people are on the householder side of things. You know, they have day jobs, they have mm -hmm. uh, families. They can't trap themselves in an, a wisdom institution to ensure that they do the difficult practices that are involved in, um, in transformation. And I see that as a, as a big problem. And Peter Lindbergh and I, sometimes we call this the practice problem, mm. which is this, uh, present day inability for human beings to consciously transform despite there being a, a big need. Mm. And so I wonder what your thoughts are on the solution to that. Like, should we have more, well, we definitely should have more wisdom institutions, but is that what, is that the end game for everyone? Like everyone's plugged into a wisdom institution or yeah. is there something that um, someone at home can do like tomorrow without, you know, moving to an institution? Yeah, I don't know. It's probably the case that I'm not the best person to to talk about that because my, my, my kind of conclusion mm. was, at least for me, um, that I really couldn't uh, access the kind of transformation that I was seeking kind of by myself, uh, that it was just, there was too much um, pressure from the systems that I was embedded in that I had to fight against in order to kind of carve out a path of transformation in the world. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I was frankly kind of particularly weak willed. Um, I've always struggled with discipline and mm. things like that. Uh, so for me, you know, it was, it was engaging with this practice problem that finally kind of resolved itself by relocating to Maple. Um, I, you know, the, the, the thing that I usually say when people ask me about this sort of thing is, is that what matters most is the um, is your friends, right? Like, can you at least find mm -hmm. friends who have a shared um, aspiration and view of what life is for and a commitment to practice? That's really because you can you can kind of um, to a certain degree trap yourself in a friendship, especially if it's a friend of virtue yes. that you feel committed to, that you feel like it, it, you, there's a mutual admiration there. That can really go a long, long way um, towards creating the conditions for you to follow through on your aspiration. Um, I mean, other than that, I, I don't know, I'd probably be asking you that question. I think that would be a better use of our time for folks who are listening than, <laughs> than hearing what I have to say, you know. Yeah, well, I completely agree with friendship as is basically the, the closest thing to an answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Uh, friends of virtue. And I, I've said this in different places before, but if I look at my life and the most transformative periods, they always had to do with uh, people, yeah. becoming friends with the right kind of people. And then taking that that relationship seriously. Um, I was talking to someone on Friday about this idea that in every relationship, there's, a, there's almost like a frontier. Mm. And you can kind of feel it. Maybe it's like an emotional frontier. Maybe it's something like a a new level of disclosure. Yes. You know, there's things that have been unsaid, uh, but maybe it's something like um, taking implicit values and making them explicit. Yes. And I find it very exciting when relationships are moving along towards that frontier. And usually in the beginning, when you're getting to know someone, you're, cause there's, it's new, you're, you're at this frontier with each other, but eventually people kind of get into habits and 
they talk about the same things and they mm-hmm. have the same kind of fun. Um, and so it, it dawned on me that it's it's kind of a responsibility if whenever you're aware of it to to lean to the frontier as much as possible mm-hmm. because if if friendships of virtue are the best answer we have for now for householders to engage in uh, transformative practices and to to endeavor to be better tomorrow than they were yesterday <laughs> then there's questions about how do you conduct those friendships of virtue and then it becomes a very significant responsibility to to be at the frontier of any relationship whenever you can yeah. and this this goes all the way up because if you transform yourself and each other then maybe that leads to microcultures and movements and mm-hmm. institutions and then maybe that's our best attempt at resolving some of these bigger crises yeah yeah i think you're right on and and it even occurs to me that you know in a certain sense a monastery is a system or technology that supports people entering into um, virtuous friendship with each other like that's mm. like i said that's a lot of what actually transforms here is just being with others in a way that is like ongoing and has a, sort of like aligned values and aspirations and it's like um I, I get curious about like what and how, how how do we kind of make a very conscious and intentional practice and cultivation of these kinds of virtuous friends like what are the what are the structures and maybe even that folks could learn from some of the systems design principles that monasteries and and places like maple have developed in order to support friends in uh, challenging each other and supporting each other in their own transformation like um, you know one thing that's really valued here at maple is feedback we really value having a feedback culture and that, mm-hmm. that can be very simple things like you know we have a ritualized meal and you're folding your napkin wrong or it can be like really deep feedback that only somebody who's lived with you for years and seen you in lots of different contexts can offer you but like you know that skill of offering feedback and the, and the beauty and the gift of it is just profound and so can we can we kind of like as friends consciously train in and offer each other feedback and that's just one dimension you know and so i get really excited i think about imagining people actually like almost entering into conscious virtuous friendship with each other and establishing like agreement fields which is essentially what a monastery yeah. uh, maple is it's just like we're all agreeing to be here in a certain way we're all agreeing to be at the zendo at 440 and we're agreeing that somebody's going to come get you if you're not there you know <laughs> like you could leave if you wanted to right, but but right. you're opting into it like, you, you know we're doing this together uh, and so yeah that's a really interesting um line of thinking and i think there's a lot of good work to be done uh, there. And I think that you and Peter are, are two of the people I see really exploring in that direction most um, in a way that I, I trust and, and it seems most interesting and grounded. Hmm. Well, that's that's encouraging to hear. What comes to mind is something I've talked about before, which is uh, this year for my birthday, I asked my friends, this is a very practical thing that, that anyone can do, but I asked my friends uh, for, for the gift of feedback. Mm. And I said, all I want is um, a Google Doc with a list of all my blind spots and flaws, <laughs> and because <laughs> because I agreed to it, um, yeah. and because my friends love me, yeah, they're like, all right. So they, they they met up and had a few drinks, and then debated my character for a couple hours, and then delivered this this document to I me and, and walked me through it, <sighs> and it was uh, it was so profound. Like it's kind of mm. a, an extreme thing to do 
for, for most people, but, um, it was really a beautiful experience and I've written about it elsewhere, but Mm. a key takeaway was that there's certain blind spots that I have that, um, I even, I even like kind of know that I have them uh, on some conceptual level, but it's very different when four people that you trust are all saying the same thing and they're all pointing out like from their angles, their vantage points, how this blind spot is affecting them. All of a sudden it just like went from this conceptual level to, to like it clicked, you know, it's like, like it hit the rest of my body or something like that. And it was very profound for behavioral change. I feel mm. like I woke up different the next day. Mm. Um, and so I, I, I kind of feel like uh, sharing something practical that's less extreme that mm. people can do, um, which just popped to mind. Uh, hmm. So I, I did this with a few friends a few years ago. We we just decided that we're going to tell the truth to each other, and we made it explicit. Hmm. You know, most hmm. relationships <laughs> implicitly have have the norm that you're not going to lie to one another. Hmm. But it's different if you're like, listen, I believe the truth is very important. I believe we should always be endeavoring to tell the truth, and so hmm. I'm committing to telling you the truth, hmm. and I want you to tell the truth to me. Hmm. And if you mutually make that commitment and you shake hands on it then you just like enter this new realm where a lot of this type of feedback can can happen more naturally. So I don't know if you're listening to this and you are inspired by that, you can literally take out your phone right now and text one of your closest friends and mm. and say like, hey, like I'm committing to telling the truth to you and have a mm. conversation about it. Mm. Mm. I love that. Yeah, I love that. I, I, that's inspiring. I, I feel like I want to get the same birthday present. That's, mm. that's really, I love that, Daniel. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. It's, a, it's actually become kind of a meme now because mm. a bunch of my other friends are now interested in it. Uh, mm. And they're like, yeah, like for my birthday, like we're meeting up next week to discuss another friend and deliver the same thing. It's like the mm. self-induced intervention. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. <laughs> so this connects with something um, you alluded to in the beginning. Mm. Uh, and I know you've talked about it before, but a lot of what's transformative about being in the monastery is that you are with other people and you're you're like eyebrow to eyebrow and you're uh you're triggering each other because that's what humans do yeah and so somebody behaves or shows up in a certain way that just affects you in a certain way and then because you live together and because you're committed you have to you have to process that um so see i wonder i wonder if you could uh, tell me more about that that process and maybe some of the practices for for making it uh less painful than it typically is oh sure yeah um yeah so as you say you know when you're living with people and and if anybody's been in a you know romantic relationship they, they know that this is the case like anybody can trigger you if you're around them long enough it seems mm-hmm. um and at maple it's great because there's like you know 20 to 30 people who can trigger you all from different angles you know just like how people have uh you know, as you said, when, when you asked your friends for feedback, that you kind of got a multi-perspectival view of your blind spots and that helped reveal what you're holding on to or what was your kind of job to be done for your development. Same thing is like ongoingly happening here, whether or not you're um, actively receiving feedback, you know, just because like people kind of irk you for some reason. Mm. And there's all, there's a skill like we, I use a lot um, IFS to kind of introspect like, why is a part of me getting agitated by the way that this person made a lunch announcement? 
And that can just like open up <laughs> into how, um, you know, oh, it's because um, I'm impatient because I'm afraid that if we don't move quickly, then other people will start to get uncomfortable. And it's really important to me that other people aren't uncomfortable here because I'm identified with the institution of Maple. And also because I learned from my father to be impatient as a way to like get people to move along or something like that. And that that can, just that, right? Just being uncomfortable with the length of a lunch announcement can be a doorway into a significant piece of work for yourself. Um, and you get those opportunities, whether you like it or not, all day at a place like this mm-hmm. um and so one dimension is is yeah this kind of like um this insolment we might say aspect of learning different tools for looking back at yourself um through the trigger through the activation another way of working with it is just through meditation right i mean part of the way that this place functions and doesn't explode like so many intentional communities is because we all spend you know, hours a day meditating and just letting go of our mm. suffering, right? Like you just directly encounter the suffering of being triggered by somebody in a really petty way. And eventually you see it so clearly that you're just like, ah, oh, well, actually, I'm just going to let go of this because why would I cause myself suffering? And in that way, you get kind of sanded down, you know, you just start to yeah. loosen up and stop taking things so personally regardless of kind of what it's triggering in you, you just let it go. And then, and then the kind of another aspect is, um, well, there actually there's two more aspects I talk about. One is, uh, working it out relationally. So we, we use a lot of circling here. And so you can kind of enter into a conversation with the person and try to work it out, you know, interpersonally. And then sometimes things that are triggering you are actually information that ought to inform the design of various systems. Like maybe mm. actually uh, we should change the kind of structuring of announcements because it in fact is taking too long, right? And so it's one of the kind of meta trainings is to know how to process these tensions, these triggers. Like how do you know if this is actually legitimate information that ought to inform how we agree to be together versus I should just like let go of it versus it's a portal into some kind of wounding that I ought to actually look quite clearly at. Um, And often it's a mixture of all of them and you kind of get to play that game and learn to up your discernment around um, how to make best use of this gift that we so often turn away from of of being um, triggered or annoyed by by your fellow humans Um, and so yeah you know we can't play with it in that sort of way in all those different dimensions Um, and then of course as we said there's also the element of feedback like I might just actually give feedback to the person right hopefully after I've purified my own reaction if it's needful I, I say like you know I think announcements are supposed to be concise and I notice you you know taking longer than I think you needed to. And then we could talk about that. Um, yeah. So all those, all those different pieces, um, come up, uh, around this topic and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just highlight. wonderful. It's just wonderful. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's horrible. It's horrible. And it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I want to highlight the, the, um, awakening practice or the meditation practice and how it feeds into this, because, um, if you are living with, 30 people and you know that they're all uh, meditating regularly and you're you're living close enough close proximity that you're triggering each other um, on some level it reduces like the amplitude even though you would be triggering each other more than people 
typically do because they're not living like that in an mm-hmm. intentional community. There's a there's a mechanism. There's a place to catch it. Yeah. And I know for me, um, if I meditate, if I have a mindful moment, like let's say I get triggered in the moment tonight, I have a mindful moment, or if I meditate the next day or in the evening or whatever, it just reduces the amplitude of whatever emotional reaction I'm having. And then often that brings me to a place where I'm in a position to make a wise choice about how to respond to it. Like maybe I say something, maybe I don't. And uh, that seems very, very practical. That seems like something that people in general should do. You know, if you're living with roommates and your roommates are triggering you, if all your roommates like had a meditation practice, it would probably help with um, what to do with those those feelings. Uh, I, I noticed that I'm, I'm curious about kind of like the other end of the spectrum here, which is we all know about practices for dampening emotional mm-hmm. reactions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I have a background in stoicism as well. And that whole philosophy is like very good at dampening the effects of negative emotions or distinguishing what's in your control and what mm-hmm. isn't. Mm-hmm. But I think there, there's a bit of a blind spot in the communities that I hang out in on amplifying emotions that ought yeah. to be amplified and i'm thinking of like like passion or yes um or or like really profound motivation or or even anger and putting anger in the place where it belongs so that something really you know maybe this is the power side of that uh, tripartite mm. model that you said in the beginning mm-hmm. um and then there's the greek word uh thumos that peter yeah. and i like to talk about yeah and so uh yeah i, I wonder what you think about that amplifying some of these more powerful emotions yeah yeah it's a good question um you know i think typically um typically this this ends up being more in the realm of kind of like um you know uh cultivation practice right uh where Mm. we intentionally cultivate certain wholesome states of mind and 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 sometimes you know people think of that purely as like uh loving kindness or equanimity but it can also be a kind of passion or you know uh i think the the equivalent in a system that i follow robert bay's soul making to the uh, thumos is eros right this kind of divine passion this sort of like um you know, love of the particular, this that can really unfold the world and unfold your own um, insolment in, in new ways. And so, you know, here, I think there's a lot of time that we get, uh, we do a lot of this work in circle, like in circling, where um, tensions can get quite high. And what, what I find is that if there's sufficient trust in conflict as a kind of mm. art or kind of field of engagement, and, and I even will like sometimes before I enter into these kinds of spaces, like just be like, okay, I trust that conflict is a doorway to deeper understanding, right? That conflict is a source of energy. We can just kind of move into whatever polarity is here and allow it to, through working us and us working it, kind of um, uh, allow for the emergence of some more intensifications of energies that might be really helpful, actually, and often also a kind of collapse of the polarity um, and a collapse of the conflict. 
And so, you know, the, the, usually I, these aren't typically the practice I'm about to mention, um, you know, taught to everybody here at Maple, but there's a group of us that are really into cultivation of eros and sort of imaginal practice and like a kind of clarification of the self-image. Like, you know, one thing, one way of understanding um, what needs to happen now in terms of the production of new spiritual or religious traditions is that we need new images and archetypes that are appropriate for the context of existential risk. So we no longer mm. look towards the placid monk sitting alone in the forest, but instead perhaps there's a kind of wrathful quality to what is needed now. We need people to stand up and step forward and not back down in the context of injustice. And we need people who are willing to sacrifice their lives perhaps on like the like even in a way that might not be effective but is deeply meaningful and soulful and critical for the maintenance of the moral fabric like that these are the kinds of um practitioners that we need now i think um and, and so that invites in a different energetic quality a different sort of um vibe with the practice mm -hmm. and it welcomes in i think these kinds of emotions these sort of like uh anger passion um, outrage, uh, enormous grief. Um, these things are all um, pieces of what needs to be brought online and on board, I think, in these um, emerging traditions. So this brings to mind a somewhat oblique question, and mm. I'll tell you why I'm asking this um, after I get your answer, but uh, what do you think of masculinity? Mm. I, I tend not to think of masculinity and femininity like as a as a kind of um, way into reflecting on my life or on the training here. There are those here that do, and we sometimes do have like day long retreats where we we separate out um, into into two two collectives who do work like that. But um, yeah, I don't. I don't that's not really a, a way in that I use. Mm. Yeah. The reason why I ask is because um, the whole the concept of masculine and feminine it's a it's a very touchy topic in I mm. think contemporary life. In fact, it seems like um, anything around gender and gender mm -hmm. polarity is something that people are uh, afraid to talk about. And I know my, myself, like when I start to think about these things, I notice what what I'll call like politically incorrect thoughts start to cluster around this topic. Mm. And nowadays I actually kind of use that as a signal for um, potential insight because mm. I know that socially speaking, there's some risk in speaking about this and thinking about it. So mm. there's probably something discarded on the other side of that risk that we need to go back and, and redeem. Mm. And this topic of masculinity has been salient to me because I notice in a lot of these communities where people are most alive to existential risk and the, the practices that we need to do mm. uh, in response to it. It's kind of like what we were saying before with the tripartite model, the power side of things has been neglected. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a tight definition of masculinity right now, but there's a, a bunch of associations and um, willfulness, yes. um, uh, power, boundaries, yeah. um, 
decisiveness, like all those things are in that uh, column, in the power column. And so I feel like there's some form of a, I don't know if blind spot is the right word, but there's something that feels like underexplored mm. for me and it's clustered around uh, the term masculine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, again, I don't, I don't usually use that frame, but I suppose you, you, one could, um, and there might be a lot of value in, in, in doing so. Um, I think those kinds of, at least the pieces that you mentioned in terms of like decisiveness mm. and boundaries. Um, what was the other one that you mentioned? Willfulness. Willfulness. Power. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all here at the, at, at Maple. And certainly for me, I think I've learned them here more than anywhere else. Uh, I think, you know, it's hard to live in community if you don't know how to set up boundaries, right? That's just kind mm. of, comes naturally um and uh i'll say that um we tend <laughs> okay i'll say it this way we, we tend not to empower people who aren't able to take power right so they're like mm. the people that you'll see in leadership here often have a lot of the traits that you mentioned because there's a recognition in the leadership of this organization that actually it's very dangerous to put somebody, to empower somebody who doesn't have a strong sense of will and boundaries and like things that they really think they are right about. It's dangerous if, if people do not have those capacities and you put them in a position of responsibility. Uh, and so right. you know, we, we, we play with that, but not under that frame of uh of masculinity yeah perhaps there's there's a better word for it uh, a word that's been less uh co-opted or or contaminated and another another thing that's coming up in my mind if, if we just think of a, like me trying to describe a spectrum of mm. human capacity and human tendency and mm. the words we use are masculine and feminine and i'm just like putting words on one side that have to do with masculine um, another word that comes up is uh, is hierarchy, mm -hmm. and I, I I think masculine relationships tend to be very very hierarchical. Yeah, that's like a statement that's true for me and the way that I mean these words. Um, but it also sounds like an intentional community where you're trying to build trustworthy people, and you have an agreement field, um, and you're conscious of who you empower is also hierarchical. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, this and place I, is I very hierarchical. That, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I feel the desire to highlight the importance of that because, mm. again, it does seem like in contemporary culture, when you talk about hierarchy, people start to get a little bit nervous because hierarchy also has uh, judgment associated with it. And I can understand why people would feel nervous, but <laughs> it's obviously, well, it seems obvious that uh, that Maple thinks it's, important to have hierarchy. So I wonder oh, yeah. how you think about it. Oh, well, it's, it's um, so this is, you know, when we, I used to run kind of admissions at Maple, and this is one of the first things I would talk about prospective trainees, um, talk about with prospective trainees was to let them know that they're entering into a very hierarchical system and that they, and like, what's your relationship with power? How would that be for you mm -hmm. if you imagine yourself entering into a system where you're told what to do and you really in a lot of cases don't have any 
like, we don't actually care what you think. Right. Um, what's that like for you? And, and for some people, it was very clear from their response that they ought not come here. Um, and that was a great way of kind of scaring people off, which is often what we do in, in our admissions conversations. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I, I used to, before I came to Maple, I was a part of Occupy Wall Street. I was a part of a number of kind of holocratic and flat organizations. And mm. I was really a firm believer in um, these sort of new organizational models. And I can tell you with great certainty, at least in my experience, that having a wise philosopher king at the center of a system is way better and way more efficient than any other organizational model that I've ever been a part of. Now, the 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 key there is an actual like wise person. Mm. If if you don't have any wise people, then mm, I don't know. I don't know what you'd base your hierarchy on. I mean, that's what we base our hierarchy on at Maple. We try to establish a wisdom hierarchy. You know, so the wisest people are making decisions, and the least wise people are basically disempowered. That's how we think it should work. Um, and uh, that's not, some people don't like that. My, my experience is that that actually works very well. And perhaps that's actually how our society should be structured, that, um, yeah. that the wise have the most choice-making power for the collective. Um, and so, yeah, it's something that we, we uh, uh, talk about a lot and that I'm personally very grateful for this place's willingness to really um, hold that steady you know, um, that, that hierarchies are important and that, uh, we should empower wise people. Just like we said at the beginning of the conversation, we try to, we try to do what we say, uh, the world should do. Yeah. Yeah. You said, uh, philosopher King. And then a moment ago mm -hmm. you were talking about new archetypes, um, beyond, you know, the, the quiet, you know, still monk. Yeah. So I wonder, uh, what are some other archetypes that you think are at least like for now, meaningful attractors to, to aspire towards? Hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. I, I don't know about, um, archetypes in particular, but there's a kind of like, there are certain images for me that are, feel quite fertile, like in hmm. this realm. Um, um, one that is often called to me is various images around the, um, beauty and significance of, of sacrifice, mm. like, um, really, uh, um, coming to see that what is sacrificed or offered, that there's a kind of reality there. There's a kind of significance to that. And so I often have images of like, um, this might sound weird if you literalize it, but it's not, it's not like something I'm literally doing, but of like, kind of like offering my heart to the world or like, you know, um, mm -hmm. like literally like putting on a plate and like offering it to all beings or something like that. So I think that, you know, one thing that comes to mind is just the quality of, of, of sacrifice. Um, another is, um, images having to do with, um, how do we say this sort of like moral courage, um, developing a sensibility of like, I will not compromise what I know to be good, true and beautiful 
you know, like how can I embody really taking a stand on behalf of that, um, which as far as I know is good. And, 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 um, you know, uh, the, again, this is, this may be, um, well, I don't know how it will land for individuals, but, um, there was a person who not too long ago, maybe five or six months ago, its name was Wynne Bruce, who decided to self-immolate on the lawn of the White House. And, mm-hmm. you know, whether you think that was a good idea or a practical action, for me, there's something in that image, a complete willingness to sacrifice one's life for what you know to be good and true, that just like rings out in me now like that i want to somehow be called forth into that sort of um sensibility of 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 willingness and availability for uh giving my life to goodness you know um and and so it's it's kind of different from this retreating from the world it's it's more of a calling forth it's more of a entering in it's more of a um a kind of willingness to do whatever is necessary for the benefit of life. Uh, and, and again, you know, I, I, am aware that these kind of framings can kind of touch on people's, uh, allergies and in, in past, in the past that would have touched on mine. But for me now, they're really beautiful and really, um, meaningful. And I think, um, I'd like to hang out with more people who, uh, uh, resonate with that kind of um, uh, uh, kind of sensibility. Uh, yeah, so that's what, that's what comes to mind for me. Yeah. Yeah. To as you said that um, the the image of Christ on the cross came to mind. Yeah. Yeah. And also the archetype of the warrior. Mm-hmm. You know, the warrior is fighting for something presumably he believes in and and death is standing right behind him yes and this connects with something you said at the beginning of the conversation where you said jordan hall mentioned that the most important thing people can do right now is learn how to die or come to terms with death (laughs) and i wonder if um i didn't really understand that in the mm. beginning, but I feel like I understand it a little bit better now. Mm. And I'm going to tell you what I think, and then maybe you can add to it. I feel like, um, you know, a, a, another thing you said was just the thing of being trapped and how it's actually good to be trapped in, you know, the right place. And in contrast, a lot of life, a lot of modern life for most people has a bunch of optionality and a frictionlessness that allows you to opt out of things as soon as they get uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think associated with that optionality is the tendency to hedge. Yeah. There's like everyone's kind of hedging their beliefs, their convictions, the way they lead their life. They're not going all in. Yeah. They're not fully committing. And this, the total opposite end of the spectrum is, is the self-immolating monk or Mm -hmm. Christ on the cross or the Mm -hmm. warrior. And you know, we, we said this in the beginning as well, the stakes are high enough um, to to make you question this tendency to hedge. Yeah. 
and I, I, I questions coming up for me and I kind of feel, <laughs> I'm feeling like a bit convicted as I say this, because I, I can't actually say these words without feeling, you know, the errors of my life where I'm hedging and holding on to optionality. But mm. it's like, how much longer are you going to delay uh, X or Y, whatever that is, you know, whatever those, the most virtuous or trustworthy part of yourself has been kind of tasking you with. That's the question that just popped up in my head and I'm not asking it to you, but right. um, yeah, I wonder if anything came up for you there. Yeah. What comes up actually is, um, so we chant every morning and in one of the chants, um, the opening line is this question. This question is, um, how do I give my life completely to great love? Hmm. How do I give my life completely to great love? And for me, these are two sides of the same coin, right? Like in order to give my life completely to great love, I have to be willing to die. I have to be willing to do whatever is necessary. I have to be willing to, as we say often at Maple, throw myself in completely without reservation, without holding back, without one foot out. Um, and uh, the times when I've been able to do that are the most beautiful times of my life, the most meaningful times of my life. Um, the most connected, the most vibrant, the most honest. Um, and uh, a lot of what I train for is to live more of my life with both feet in, with just a total commitment, a total presence, a total willingness to this, whatever's happening, this moment, this conversation, you know, this breath when you're meditating. Um, and a lot of what we're doing here is just getting out of the fucking way you know just get out of the way so that this great love can live life for you you're actually not so needed uh, but it takes a lot of work usually to see that and to let go and to kind of pry your hands off the steering wheel <laughs> yeah daniel as a closing question if someone's listening to this and they feel like a like a little bit of inspiration or some conviction or some some imperative to do something we talked about a couple of practical things before but uh what would you suggest to them and and feel free to mention uh, maple as well because i know maple also has residencies and opportunities for people to visit yeah thanks daniel um so so i'll say this in two ways that um you know the, I believe very strongly, and I'm, I'm kind of committing my life to, uh, you know, supporting the emergence of a rich and vibrant network of wisdom institutions. I think that there need to be spaces of residential training, and that needs to become common. Mm. Like, I dream of a world in which as many people spend a year in a training system like this as engage in something like AmeriCorps, right? That's like 250,000 people a year. I just like get chills imagining that many mm. people spending a year doing intensive contemplative and transformational practice. And I, I believe that that's possible. I believe that that's wanted. I think that the funding and the um, kind of infrastructure is available for that. And the main thing I think that we're missing is actually people who are kind of willing to take the leap into giving their lives to making that happen. You know, there's so much that goes into establishing a center like this. There's so much work, 
so much care and presence and thoughtfulness and like working out of things. And so like, you know, the, the main beacon I want to like light up is just like, if that's you, like, if you think that might be you, like reach out to me personally, please. I, 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 we, we, we kind of, we need you. Like the world needs you. I, I want to work with you. Um, it's uh, rare and important work, I believe. Uh, so that's like uh, like the high level thing. It's like could, could that you know if you're out there, please reach out. Um, and then on a more kind of um, uh, kind of simple level, we have we have a, what we call a stewardship program at Maple, which is um, you can come for free and stay for uh, you know many months if you want, or a month or. Uh, and, and just kind of live in the community, do the practices, do the retreats and serve the community, you know, doing cooking, cleaning, buildings and grounds, uh, that kind of work. And it's wonderful. It's really, really wonderful. And it's a great opportunity. So if, you, if you're like, uh, just want to experience what um, this kind of lifestyle is like, you know, you can just go on the website and I think it's like monasticacademy.org slash service. And you can just look at what that's all about. And it's, again, it's totally, uh, free or, or generosity based and, um, super flexible. And, um, it's just a wonderful program for folks who want to connect with this, this community. Daniel, thank you very much for this conversation today. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. This was really fun. <laughs>